We are blessed with an opportunity again this afternoon to assemble even as we are at this time, to turn our attention and direction as the shades of this evening gather about us and give consideration and thought to some of those things contained again in the holy and divine Word of God. As the day has passed and arrived at this particular point, you may have noted in the bulletin as well as you can see before us this evening, we'll be giving some consideration to that parable contained in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 22. It is to that particular passage that I would ask that we turn to give some reflection, some thought to not only that particular parable, but also to some of the matters that laid us in our appreciation of it in considering, in fact, that parable that the Lord related just before it. These might be some introductory thoughts that will lead us along that way. Isn't it remarkable the effectiveness that's associated with the usage of the parables in the Holy Scriptures? As you and I read these and find even till this day how that the lessons contained in them can still be so memorable that they can be, in fact, almost unforgettable. And amazingly, too, there are some in the world <clears throat> who are even aware of at least the names of some of the parables, sometimes even those who are not very favorable toward attendance of at least regularly in church services are familiar with the name, the Good Samaritan, and they could at least state some of the features of that parable contained in Luke chapter 10. By the same token, some will remember the prodigal son at least by way of the name and how it was that that unfolded in that parable of Luke chapter 15. In all of those instances, those are just small samples of the others the Lord taught. In fact, there are well over 30 of them contained in the New Testament. And this evening, we will look at the one found in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 22. Those truths that are contained in this particular parable are still as needful for us to appreciate. And they are as needful for us to attempt to utilize in our estimation of the greatness of God's will as would be the message on that occasion the Lord revealed it. And so tonight, as we give thought to this parable of the wedding feast, let's do so by first noting that it occurs in a particular setting that can be very useful as we look at Matthew 21. And once we've done that and have familiarized ourselves with its placement, then we'll look more carefully and diligently into the parable itself. It is with that in mind that I would invite you to give some appreciation to these features of Matthew chapter 21. In this particular parable, the Lord, as you remember, had just reached Jerusalem. The days, of course, of His life upon this earth in the flesh were shortly to come to a conclusion. As this chapter reveals before us, He entered into Jerusalem and did so rather triumphantly, riding upon the back of that animal, that burden of beast that He had encouraged and demanded His followers go and get for Him. However, as He entered in Jerusalem, and as He proceeded, in fact, throughout the events that was to lead to, of course, His own crucifixion later that week, we find on this occasion these remarkably powerful, direct, and straightforward teachings that not only were to bring great meaning to the gen generality of His hearers, but certainly to those that were of Jewish background, to them it would have an especially poignant meaning. Verses 33 to 46 of Matthew chapter 21. The very setting of this parable, as you might notice on that occasion, it is called the parable of the wicked husbandman. And in the occasion of that particular parable, 
It reads, of course, in such a way that you and I would do well to recollect just a few of its features. It was on this occasion that Jesus spoke about a householder who not only had a vineyard, but he took immaculate care of it. He digged a wine press in it. He built a tower in it. And furthermore, he digged it carefully to ensure that it would bring forth properly and rightly with great amount of fruit. To that end, he, of course, went off to a far country and he left it into the tender care of husbandmen. When the time came that it was time to receive the fruits from that vineyard, he sent servants so that they could receive the fruits and bring them, of course, to the householder. However, those husbandmen, they shamefully entreated the servants. They did so, of course, by beating some of them. Not only that, they shamefully despised them and even went so far, as we learn in the text, to send them away empty-handed. However, the householder went also to this extent. He sent more servants, again earnestly desiring that the fruit might be obtained. On this occasion, they again treated them very despitefully and even killed some of them. Amazingly, we find on this occasion that that householder said, I will, in fact, send my son that they may reverence Him, they will honor Him as being the one that is the recipient, the actual son of the householder. But in fact, when these husbandmen espied Him, they said, this is the heir. He is the one to inherit it. Let us kill Him and we'll take the inheritance for ourselves." And that's what they did. They put to death the very son and now the Lord proceeded to describe it like this. What will the householder do to those husbandmen? And he described them as wicked. And of course, the Lord went on to say, He will miserably destroy those husbandmen. And as He were to do that, He will in fact turn over the kingdom, the vineyard, to those who will render the fruits thereof. At this point, might you notice with me verses 43 and 44 of chapter 21 to notice some of the things that were stated about this. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he had spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet." Isn't it amazing that on this occasion in directness the Lord revealed these things and taught about them and they perceived He was speaking about the Jewish economy and the way that they had so rejected the Savior? And isn't it true in verses 41 to 43, the text that Jesus utilized, He quoted from Isaiah and later in the New Testament in quotation, that's directly applied to Jesus. There is no question that stone that the builders rejected was in fact the one doing the speaking, the Son of God that they rejected. And in that rejection, Jesus said, The kingdom shall be rent and taken from you and given unto one that will bring forth the fruits thereof. When we hear the Lord's rather remarkable discussion on that occasion, we might remember this was but a few days prior to His crucifixion. And as He made this statement telling them, might we identify just a few of the features about these husbandmen? First of all, there was a householder who worked so hard to make a fruitful vineyard. He took care of it, 
providing not only a wall but a wine press, a tower. This owner, of course, was God Himself. And He had tenderly guided and made provision for a nation bringing forth the proper fruits, the Jewish economy. As He had led it out with regard to these husbandmen, oh, how they had not taken good care of it. These husbandmen who should have been the rightful ones, appreciative of the nature of the kingdom, understanding the source from whom it came, and the nature of all the blessings vouchsafed to them. They were the Jewish leaders who in fact had time and again shamefully entreated those who were the prophets, shamefully entreated those that were God's emissaries and ambassadors to them. And when the son was sent, they in fact even put him to death. Before that week was over, they would do the same, putting to death, of course, the very son of the great one himself. With all of that in our mind, might I ask that you give some thought with me to just a few of these thoughts. Isn't it still interesting the Jewish leaders perceived that he had spoken this to them and about them. They were not blinded in the sense that they didn't know the thrust of what the Lord said. But when they proceeded in verse 46 to think they could take him, we notice they were unable to do so because they feared the multitude. They feared the people. It is with those things as preparation. The stage is now set for chapter 22. You may notice the very first word of chapter 22 is the word and. It is a direct continuation into this chapter. It is not as if a new thought is being developed. It is not as if a new subject is being addressed. Jesus is about to tell another parable. He is about to state to that same audience another set of ideas, but not as if they're entirely new, you see. They build upon the things they've just heard. In fact, if you'll notice near the top, verses 1 to 14 are this parable of the wedding feast. After having listened and at least noted some of the things of the previous one, let's now notice this one. And let's read it beginning in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, saying, Might we note the word again? The Lord is again using this teaching methodology of parables, and He's doing so to that same audience on that same occasion. Verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests." And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how, came, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You'll notice that as we will attempt to divide the remainder of the lesson, I thought we would simply look at this occasion of what the earthly story represented. As we've often noted, a parable really was and still can be described as an earthly story with a spiritual or heavenly meaning. So what is the earthly story? And then later we'll ask, what's the spiritual or heavenly meaning? As we can well imagine, this king made preparation of a marriage feast. And as verses 2 and 3 tell us, he made this for his son. His son, on this occasion of celebration, was to enter into a marriage with his betrothed or his beloved. And as this selection and choice of the son's bride was made, as was the custom and occasion in that day, a notable feast took place, a time of pomp and joy and celebration, for it truly was a momentous occasion. And as that particular occasion had come forward, we noticed it was also rather typical if finances and other things permitted to have a feast, a dinner if you please. This was the marriage feast as it was often so called. Sometimes we call this the parable of the wedding feast. As the verses proceed to reveal to us the things that unfolded, we notice the time of the feast came and invitations, if you please, had been sent. The king thus sent his servants, tell them that were invited, those that were bidden, they can now come. All things are ready. However, they would not come. Those that were invited, those that had received the invitation, those that were bidden, they would not come. In fact, the text tells us that some went about their business to the farm, others went about their business to their merchandise, they would not come. You'll notice in verses 4 through 6, amazingly enough, it says they made light of it. They did not look seriously upon the urgency of the invitation. They didn't lift it to the high degree of consideration that it was worthy to, to possess. They made light of it. They looked trivially upon the invitation, and they would, in fact, not come. But you'll notice in verse number 6, it says... The remnant took his servants. Not everyone you see, but some. Some of those who were there took those servants. And the text says in that very verse, entreated them spitefully. And amazingly enough, they slew them. They put to death those who were merely bringing the message that it's time to come to the feast. Can you and I imagine the horror? Can we imagine the great degree of audacity of these? You'll notice the king merely had brought everything to its proper preparation. The time for the celebration was ready to begin. These servants were just informing them that it's time to come. And they actually put them to death. Doesn't that sound shocking, startling, amazing? But yet, notice what else we notice. Verse number 7 informs us that when the king heard of these things, he was wroth. There was great anger within him. You and I are not at all surprised by that. How angry would you and I be if someone whom we were just sending a message to put to death the messenger? 
we would be beside ourselves in horror, in virtual disbelief. And yet, we notice in verse 7, when he heard this, he sent forth his armies. And two things he did. He destroyed those murderers and he burned up their city. You and I would say that this particular king had the right to, in fact, respond in that regard. But remember, there was a celebration to be enjoyed. And in the punishment of them, he did not lose sight of the joyous occasion of his son's wedding feast. And so in verse number 8, he said to his servants, other servants, those that were still alive, of course, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. By their reaction and by their disposition and by their behavior, they accounted themselves unworthy of the blessing of the wedding feast and the possibility of their attendance thereof. And so it was in verse 9, the king said, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to come to the marriage. The doors, if ye please, were now open to others to enjoy the beauty of that celebration, the festivity of that hour and time. Invite others, as many as you can find. And so in verse 10, the servants did that very thing. They went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests. There was a celebration that was still to be enjoyed, even though there were some who had accounted themselves unworthy and refused to come. There were these who seemed excited to come. Whether they were the good or the bad and the highways and byways of life, they were invited to come and many of them did. And as they came, we notice in verse 11, the king came in to see his guests. He came in to witness the finery of this hour. And isn't it interesting that he espied a man who was not adorned with a wedding garment, despite the fact that they had been supplied. Isn't it interesting that inasmuch as the king made that observation... He asked of this man. He didn't let the occasion go by without questioning it. He said, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He had nothing to respond. He had no answer to give. In verses 13 and 14, the king then gave order. And the king especially said, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For you'll notice the king also said, Many are called, but few are chosen. Having highlighted the actual earthly story, even though parts of that still are astonishing to us, to think that someone would murder messengers that way, we at least can envision the scene. We at least can picture it and give it some thought and consideration. But it is in that regard in that way that we do prepare ourselves to, in fact, do the following. The very last statement on that slide, the comparisons to the earlier parable. Can you and I see some similarities? Can we in these two see some matters that do look remarkably similar? Let us see. In the earlier one, we noticed there was a householder, one who owned a vineyard, and he, in fact, had led it out to some husbandmen. And we learned that that householder represented the great God of heaven. 
On this occasion, we learn there was a king. And this king had a son. And this king made ready a marriage feast and invited others to come. That king was representative, wasn't he, of Jehovah God. Telling us of his desire to make ready a marriage feast for the son. But let's look further. In that previous one, we will remember that there were some sent forth. Those husbandmen, you see, had been given the tally, the responsibility to take care of the vineyard and, in fact, make ready the fruit thereof. And when the servants were sent, they treated them spitefully and even put some of them to death. In this occasion, when the king sent the servants to bring the message that the feast was ready, they too spitefully entreated the messengers, the servants, and even put some of them to death. Another interesting similarity might at this point we give some thought to the business also affirmed about those comparisons. We notice in the previous one when the king, or rather when the householder appreciated what was done to those servants, we did notice, didn't he, that he ultimately would send and make reckoning with those husbandmen and he would, wickedly, he would destroy those wicked husbandmen. On this occasion, in regard to the marriage feast, we remember that that king destroyed their city and burned it. In each of those instances, the similarities cannot go unnoticed. Could it be the Lord not only was affirming something similar in the two, but could it be He was driving it home maybe even more strongly in this parable of chapter 22? As we give some thought to what will occur next, we will have occasion to look again at some of the similarities. May we phrase them in the following way and learn along the way that some of these lessons are still as needful today. First thing might we say is this. In that parable of chapter 21, the one in which we learned about the householder and we learned about the vineyard and how that these husbandmen had little respect for the authority of the householder, little respect for the reverence that was due to his son, little respect for the fruit should have been given to the king. We notice that that tells us still today, doesn't it, that rejection of the Lord is still a possibility. Notice what happened in that parable of chapter 22. The king made a marriage feast. It should have been a time to honor the son. The son's getting married. And this king made everything ready for his son, and there were some who made light of it. Are there still those today who make light of it? Who make light of all that the son stands for? Who make light of what Jesus came to do because he is the son of God, and he called himself the son of man? Yes, indeed, isn't it true that it's still possible to reject the son, just like those householders, just like those wicked husbandmen did? and just like those individuals of chapter 22 did. I would invite us to consider it in the following way. You'll notice in chapter 22, it says, The remnant took his servants. Not everybody treated them shamefully. Not everybody was guilty of putting him to death. But some of them were. The choice was left to their own attitude or disposition, wasn't it? It was their choice. They had been invited they had received the invitation. The way that they chose to respond to it was theirs. Isn't it still that way today? 
The glorious invitation has been extended. God in His love has not pre-selected one or two of us and said, Randy, you will do, but to someone else you won't. Isn't it amazing that the invitation has been extended and all of us have the opportunity by our own capability to respond. But rejection of Jesus is possible. You and I, if we want to, can still run roughshod over the cross. We can still give it no thought, no light, no interest, no consideration, and we can doom our soul in a devil's hell just the same, can't we? That's the way the Lord made it. He does leave the decision to you and me, doesn't He? Just as surely as those husbandmen, they had the opportunity to grant the fruit to the householder, to respond the way that should have been just and noble and right. But they chose to be ugly and mean and rebellions, rebellious about it. Can we not appreciate today that the duty and responsibility of all of that also comes to us? How are you and I responding to the invitation of our Savior? I'd ask that we give some thought to these verses. In John 3.16, that golden text of the New Testament, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the Son again, that God in fact sent forth His Son out of great love and desire that you and I might have opportunity for redemption. That only leads us to perhaps a different passage in a different text, sometimes called the great invitation of the New Testament, in which the Lord said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That invitation of Matthew 11, verses 28 and following. Notice it was to those who are greatly wearied, and He said, I will give you rest. It is to be noted that when the Lord calls us, he does expect fruit to be born and to be given. And that fruit stated in Romans 7, 4, stated as well in John 15, verses 4 through 6, highlights the degree of that fruit that God wishes and commands that you and I extend and make available and ever ready to Him. As that invitation is directed to us, one of the most graphic and vivid ways in which that is sent is found in the closing words of Revelation 3. We're each familiar with how that went. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Notice the invitation. If any man will open the door. You'll notice you and I have the opportunity though with jurisdiction of the door to either open it or to keep it closed. What about you and what about me tonight? Are we barring between us and the Savior a door and to this point we've refused to open it? We are not allowing Him in with complete control of our life. You and I control the door. Later in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, one final time this invitation is extended. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. There is water of life available from the Son and you and I are able to open the door and to allow Him to, do, to give it to us. The first lesson we're able to learn, rejection of Jesus is still possible, just as it was then. Second lesson, let us draw it directly into the context of the place where the Lord placed it. What about the Jewish rejection of Jesus? 
in that parable of Matthew 21. Those wicked husbandmen represented the Jewish hierarchy. Those, of course, representative of a nation. They were His chosen people. They should have been the ones who saw Him when He came, were greatly respectful of His Word, the message of truth housed in the gospel, and should have held up His arms in all the good works that He was ready and excited to do. It was true, the common people heard Him gladly, Rome, uh, Matthew 12, verse 37. But isn't it true, the Jewish leaders had no interest in Him. They were envious of Him. They were jealous of Him in a bad way. And they couldn't wait to get rid of Him. They were uninterested wholly in that message of the gospel. Because they rejected it, because they wished to have nothing to do with support for it and of it, and at every turn they chose to hamper and hinder the work of Jesus, let us ask this question. Did God punish the Jews because of that? We notice in these parables, on the first one, it says He wickedly, or rather He would destroy those wicked husbandmen. In the second one, what did the king do? He sent his armies, and he burned their city, and he destroyed those who had put his servants to death. As we give thought, what had the Jews done to the servants of the Master? What had they done throughout the centuries to those that God had sent to them? His messengers. You and I might call them the prophets. I've listed for you just a few passages for your consideration. First of all, in Matthew 23, verse 31, just one chapter forward from where we are this evening in our consideration. On that occasion, Jesus speaking said, Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that... Ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Three verses later in verse 34 of the same chapter. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and, mer and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Jesus directly said to the Jews, didn't He? You have killed the prophets throughout the centuries, you have been the very ones who have turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to God's calling of you. And he said, you're going to continue that work because you still are going to, in the synagogues, scourge those and even put to death by crucifixion those that are my servants. Other passages as well. In Luke 11 verse 47, as well as 1 Thessalonians 2 15. In each of those instances... The Jews were said to have been the ones who had put to death the prophets, even putting to death the Son of God. If it is the case that the Jews were guilty of those things in light of the parables, it still is an open question for us to ask, did God punish the Jews in the way that these parables describe? Did He destroy the wicked husbandman? As the king sent out his armies... Did God send out armies and destroy these Jews because they had rejected the Son? Because they had rejected His gospel? Because they had been a nation that had not brought forth the fruit that God expected? May we submit that yes, He did. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in fact early on in that chapter and continuing all the way through Matthew 25, or rather chapter 24 verse 35, Jesus gave a description of what was going to happen. 
Let's just rehearse a few of those things with particular emphasis on chapter 24. It has often been said that chapter 24 is one of the most misunderstood chapters in all of the Bible. Matthew chapter 24. One of the reasons for that is this. At the outset of that chapter, three questions were asked of Jesus by His disciples. In fact, of those questions, you and I remember them. They were the following. Jesus, as He left Jerusalem... You might recall that the apostles brought his attention to that temple and said, Look at how great this temple is. It was Jesus, though, who quickly responded, I'm telling you, the day is coming that not one stone will be left on another. Jesus directly said, That great temple, those stones that look so immovable, you're going to see the day coming when there won't be one stone left on another. Those disciples, it seems, were beside themselves in practical disbelief. And so as the Lord proceeded on that journey, He crossed through the Kidron Valley, ascended the mount there that you and I would recognize on the other side of that valley. He came to the Mount of Olives, and as He sat down on its summit, four of the apostles came to Him, and they asked Him these questions. Lord, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? The Lord was asked three questions. He answered them in order. You'll notice the first one was, When shall these things be? What things were they talking about? Jesus had just described the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. And the first question that the Lord answered was that one, When is this going to happen? And over the next 34 verses, Jesus answered it. You and I have often noted the graphic way in which he presented it. And I might ask you to notice verse 34 of Matthew 24. Jesus wrapped up the answer by saying, Verily I say unto thee, This generation shall not pass away till all these things shall be fulfilled. Everything from the opening verses of that chapter all the way to verse 34, Jesus said, You are going to see it, this generation. Now, what things did the Lord describe? The Lord described in that some of the most terrible, some of the most awful, some of the most severe and hardening occasions of warfare this world ever had seen. What He was describing was the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus described in graphic matters what would happen. And He even described it in such a way that the signs of it were unavoidable. The Lord gave signs and whereby those signs they could see the end coming. Not the end of the world, mind you, but the end of Jerusalem. The Lord gave signs. There would be earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars. He even described that there would be nation rise up against nation. He even went on to say, this is that of which Daniel spoke, quoting Daniel chapter 9. Can you not appreciate with me that as they heard the Lord speak of these things, He again affirmed that it would be in this generation. If you and I typically render in biblical parlance a generation as 40 years, it would be within 40 years that all of that was going to happen. Before we look at the finality of it, the terribleness of it, may I ask you to notice at one point in that chapter, Jesus said one more thing. He said, There hath been nothing like it before, or since. 
Jesus described that destruction of Jerusalem up until that point as the greatest single military engagement in warfare of destruction that the world had ever known. May I submit to you that the destruction of Jerusalem as prophesied by Jesus was the result of an angry God in His response to a nation who had put His Son to death, who had been that vineyard that should have brought forth good fruit, but they had not. They should have had respect to the Son and been excited to go to the marriage feast, but they had made light of it. And God's angry response about them and to them was their destruction. May I ask you to notice again in chapter 22 of Matthew, in particular, verse number 7, When the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Destroyed those murderers? You and I have just listened to Jesus make some statements that the military engagement that would lead to Jerusalem's destruction would be one of the greatest, if not the single greatest tragedy of military might in the entirety of the history of the world. History records for us that in the seventh decade of the first century, the Jews proceeded to start a rebellion against Rome. This was in the year 66 A.D. As they did so, in the year 68 A.D., Rome had had at the outset enough of this, and they began to dispatch armies. However, there was a side note at this point, for there was an uprising in a different part of the empire. And so for a brief time, the armies were recalled. But then in A.D. 70, after a new emperor had been put on the throne, he dispatched his son, the son of that king, that emperor, the Roman Caesar, and he said, go and take care of the matter. And that he did. That son brought all the armies that Rome had to offer and brought them against the Jews in that city of Jerusalem and they utterly wiped out the city. Those who wrote about the history of that event, Josephus in particular, tells us that well over one million Jews were slaughtered. Men, women, boys, girls, it made no difference. Every one of the Jews left inside that city was put to death. That temple was ransacked, utterly destroyed, and burned to the ground. May I submit again the response of an angry God to a people who should have been the vineyard, excited to see the sun, but they were not. God destroyed that wicked city. And might we notice that as He did that in the year 70 A.D., what about that system we know of as the Jewish economy? It was destroyed as well. You see, it was that old Jewish system had been nailed to the cross 40 years earlier. But there were some who clung tenaciously to it like the Sadducees and tried to hold on to what no longer was real and no longer was the thoroughfare to heaven. But in A.D. 70, God took care of the rest of it. Because with Jerusalem destroyed and the temple gone, the Sadducees died away pretty quick. Isn't it amazing that what was affirmed in these parables did come to pass? And might we say that does bring us to one brief and final thought to the lesson tonight. The third lesson is this one. I housed it in these words. All are invited, 
but they are furnished with a garment. Isn't that amazing? We remember that after the initial ones who had been invited refused to come, that the king sent out, and you find anyone and everyone, and you also issue to them an invitation. And they came, and they were guests for the feast. But as they made ready to go in, we notice that the king espied one of them without a garment. One of the men there who had accepted the invitation, or so it seems, he had not prepared himself by adorning the wedding garment. When asked, he was speechless. And we will remember the punishment. He wasn't allowed to stay. Kick him out into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in the verse closes, or the chapter rather, in these rather powerful ways, many are called, but few are chosen. Very briefly, some of those things, in fact, remind us that there's a rather powerful lesson in that for us. We've noted already that many are called, the invitation of the gospel is issued to all people. It is true that the outset, there were some particular ones that were invited, the Jews. They were the first ones with the opportunity for the truth, weren't they? In fact, from Acts chapter 2 on into Acts chapter 10, as far as the record indicates, no Gentile ever had had the privilege and the blessing of hearing the message of the gospel. It was only for the Jews. They had the first invitation, but they made light of it. They didn't, in fact, treat it the way it should have been treated. They put to death the Son of God. And then in Acts 13, 46, Paul said, I go to the Gentiles. Because you have rejected it and you have rebelled against it, those Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles and they will receive it. Now might we quickly say from the Roman letter, the Jews too, they had the opportunity and like Paul, they too could accept the truth. However, many of them didn't. Might I suggest, though, that the greatest lesson in that for us, it would seem, is this. Could you and I be like the man who did not have on a wedding garment? Could we have been a person who might have been in a position to receive the invitation? And maybe for a while we actually visited the feast. But after a while, the king comes in and sees me or you without a wedding garment. If so, what does that mean? And what are the garments? Does it mean a coat and tie has to be worn for the worship service? Does it mean for the ladies a dress? What is this garment to which the inspired writer is referring? May I submit the answer is given in the holy text. May we go to the very last book in all the Bible. In Revelation chapter 19, we have the answer to this given. What are those wedding garments that you and I must wear if when the king comes we're to be found pleasing in his sight? That verse, and we'll only read two, but it's verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 19. This reads as follows. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife hath made herself ready. The Lamb, that's of course the Son of God, isn't it? That Lamb slain since the foundation of the world. That Lamb spoken of in Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the Lamb that was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing, the Lamb. Revelation 19 says the Lamb has come. It's time for the marriage. You and I know the church is His bride. This apparently is now a description of that ultimate and final time when the church and her groom can be together forevermore. The finality and consummation of the marriage is now about to take place. Next verse. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean, white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And there's the answer. You and I, you see, must be adorned properly if we expect to be a part of the marriage feast. On that great day of judgment when the final decisions and accord is made, all of us, of course, want to be allowed to go in and enjoy the feast forevermore. But may I submit, if we are not found clothed wearing the right garment, we won't be allowed entrance. And we've just been told what the garment is the righteousness of the saints. Isn't it still interesting that as verse 7 closes, it says the wife hath made herself ready. Throughout life, she made herself ready by putting on the righteousness of the saints. Are you wearing the righteousness of the saints? Righteousness means right living. Do you talk and speak the way that you should? Do you go the places you should, but do you avoid the places you shouldn't go? Do all of us do that? Are we adorned with the righteousness of saints? If we are, praise be unto God. And may we continue to live in steadfastness that way. But if not, why not? And may I say, friend, you're just going to be as speechless at judgment as that man in the parable. You will have no good answer. Remember when the king asked him, he had nothing to say. You and I won't have any good thing to say either. We won't have any good answer. There will be no good excuses. There won't be any good reasons. All we'll be able to say is just stand there speechless. Don't, look, don't let yourself be in that position. If tonight you are not adorned in the apparel of the saints, may we close our lesson summarizing it all like that. Just as the Jews were punished so greatly because of the rejection of Jesus. At the judgment, you will be punished too, and so will I if we reject Jesus. Come to Him tonight if you need to do that in your life. If you have not been faithful to His cause, if you at some point or in many ways in your life have not in fact given the proper response by wearing the garments, the righteousness He has given, make a change in that tonight. The song that we're about to sing is based on this parable. All things are ready. Come to the feast. And tonight, if you need to come to the feast, you must believe, you must repent, you must confess and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that, we would be happy to do so. If you have begun a walk with the Lord that you haven't been faithful, you have taken off the garments of righteousness and put on the garments of unrighteousness, put back on the righteous garments we'd be happy to start you or help you start that journey this evening. If we could be of assistance to you, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.